First reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16. A familiar narrative for all of us, I'm sure. The anointing of David by Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadav, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But, and, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse said. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is a psalm that many of us, I think, would know. Psalm 23. So if you'd be so kind, I think it'd be nice if we all read it together. Is that all right? Let's say it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you for that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our third reading is from the the book of Acts, chapter 20. And it begins uh, at verse 26. Paul says, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after, these, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Welcome to Sunday night, Christ Church. Um, it is a pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I am Pastor Matthew. Um, by all means, please call me Matt uh, or Mike or Mark. Anything that starts with an M, really, I give you permission. Um, originally, I'm from California, and about eight years ago, my wife and I made Aliyah, uh, which is the process in which uh, Jews from around the world can come and make their home here. Uh, simultaneously, um, I am a um, believer in Jesus um, as the Messiah. So I've been here for eight years, and I've had the unique privilege of not only living here, but I also run a Bible college here in Jerusalem called Calvary Chapel Bible College. And uh, I've been doing that for about six years. So let's get started. Get into our text. Our story tonight, um, really it focuses on the anointing of David. Okay, and we read those passages just a few minutes ago. Um, David is the replacement of King Saul. But how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point where David is replacing a king? Well, first and foremost, God had always intended that he would be the king of Israel, that he would be the shepherd, that he would be the head and the ruler of his people. However, the people at a certain point, they told Samuel, we want a king like other nations. And you remember, God says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. Give him a king. So God chooses a man named Saul. Now, Saul, from his beginning, he was very humble. However, very quickly, he began to make mistakes. He did things um, without consulting of the Lord. He did things in his, his own understanding made a sacrifice that was, only made, uh, that was supposed to be made by a priest. And when God instructed Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites, man, woman, and child, oxen, sheep, donkey, everybody, it all goes. 
It says that he spared Agag, the king, and some of the oxen and donkeys, etc. And what does Samuel tell King Saul? He says, what, what is this that you have done? Now, why is this important that Samuel would be speaking on behalf of God, saying that God is displeased with this? Because partial obedience is not obedience. We need to listen to God in the fullest and not with partiality. And so what does God tell King Saul? He says, I've removed you from the kingdom and I'm replacing you with a man after my own heart. And here we get to the passages. God tells Samuel, how long are you going to be mourning over Saul? Take your anointing oil, go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel says to God, well, you know what? You know, Samuel is going to kill me if I do that. And he says, okay, look, take a heifer and go and sacrifice there. So he goes to Bethlehem with the sacrifice and he invites the house of Jesse. He consecrates his family. And so Jesse shows up with his family and the moment that Samuel sees Eliab or Eliab in, in the King James, he says, surely this must be the next king of Israel. Now what happens after that? Because I think it's very important. God interrupts his thought and says, nope, he's not the one. Because man looks on the outward, but God sees the heart. There's a couple things that I want to glean off of this automatically. One, that I, I love that Samuel was so sensitive to the Spirit. Not only what, did he hear God in the instruction, but when he went, he was willing to be directed and redirected by the Spirit of God. And when it came to his own understanding, oh, this must be the right one, he knew when God spoke and said, no, it's not the right one. Are we sensitive to God's spirit? Even when God speaks to us and says, hey, go and do this, and then we go and do it, and, you know, the next day, you know, we're going in that same direction, and God says, okay, that's enough. Now go in this direction. Are we continually seeking the Lord? You know, I am absolutely convinced that David was a man after God's own heart because he sought the Lord continually. You know, it says that Saul was a man who was taller than most Israelis. He, he says that his head, he was taller um, from his shoulders up. And some would say that Saul was a man of the head, but David was a man of the heart. But going back to our text, I love what God says. Because the way that man sees things sees life or humans or the, the next in leadership is not the way that God sees it. Who would we choose? Somebody who's charismatic, good-looking maybe, speaks well, educated, knows how to make money, whatever it is. But God wants a man after his own heart. And so Eliav is not the right one. It says that Jesse brought seven of his sons before Samuel. And one by one by one, God says, that's not the one. Then at the end, almost like an afterthought, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? 
And he says, yeah, actually, I have one more. And he's in the field right now, tending to the sheep. What I like about that passage is if David was a go-getter, if he was a real entrepreneur, if he had any sort of like inclination towards, you know, saving his life and doing well in life, he would have been front and center with Samuel. Because after all, Samuel is one of the greatest prophets who's ever lived. And he's about to anoint the next king of Israel. Put on his Sunday best, show up, maybe show off a little bit, tell him how much of the Bible he knows, do a couple of push-ups, anything it takes, right? But he doesn't. And I love that God didn't choose an ambitious man, but he chose a shepherd, a man who was willing to be with the sheep no matter what. And so Jesse brings his son over. David is anointed as a boy, to be the next king of Israel. And then the next day he becomes king? No. And then David gets thrown into the wilderness for, some say, 15 to 20 years, running for his life, going through hardship, training. God is training him to be the next king of Israel, working on him. We weren't born kings. We weren't born men and women of God. God has to put us through the ringer sometimes to work that out. Now, I made a couple of points about the message today. And by the way, the message is called, When the Good Shepherd Seeks a Shepherd After His Own Heart. The first point that I want to make in regards to this, I want to ask you a question. Are we being led by the Lord in our decision-making. Now, in context, we're talking about choosing the next leadership. That's a good question. Who do we want as the pastor or government official, whatever it may be? Are we praying about that? But I think this can apply to every aspect of our life. Are we seeking the Lord in our decision-making or are we leaning on our own understanding? In Proverbs 3, 5, it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So how can we trust the Lord? How can we hear from God, be directed and redirected? I'm gonna give you three ways tonight how you can truly hear from the Lord, okay? Now, if you know of like a fourth and a fifth, I'm cool with that. Please don't get mad at me. I don't wanna hear an earful after service. I, you know, that's between you and God. But this is For me personally, a guideline on how I hear from the Lord specifically, okay, that I think is very safe. Number one, how can we hear from the Lord? We can hear from the Lord by God's word. We can hear from the Lord by knowing our Bibles. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. All of it is for us. I always, and by the way, I teach theology, I, you know, I teach the Bible, we go through all kinds of theological debates, and it's fun, but I tell young people, I said, look, don't study theology until you've read the Bible three times, because sometimes we can interpret the Bible by our theology instead of vice versa. And we need to know what the Bible says. Or we hear, you know, pockets of sermons and we think that we know the truth. And and sometimes I'll hear people quote the scriptures out of context. Or that's not even a Bible verse, right? 
I'm sure we've all heard that before. So we need to know the Bible. I, I can't tell you how many times that I've had a man or a woman come to me and say, hey, I'm leaving my spouse and my children and I'm going to go serve the Lord somewhere in the world. And God, God told me that he's just going to use me in a powerful way. And I usually say something like, that's not from the Lord. Well, how do you know it's not from the Lord? Because I read my Bible. Because God would not tell you to leave your kids and leave your spouse. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But we have these delusions of grandeur that we think that God is calling us to instead of reading the Bible and knowing it. We don't need to hear an audible voice to, to hear the voice of God. It was like the, uh, one man came to the old preacher and he says, why doesn't God speak audibly anymore? And he says, hey, just take your Bible, your Bible read it out loud. Congratulations, God is speaking audibly. We, we can hear from the word of God this word of God is perfect. And I, I would say to you, if you don't have a devotion time in the word, then I would get one. Start with Genesis and end with Revelation and know the word of God. Number two, how can we hear from God? We can hear from God specifically through the word. Okay, have I confused anybody so far? You guys with me? Good. It says in Hebrews 12, excuse me, 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. There are two words for the word, word, in the Greek. One is logos, okay? It means the, you know, the general uh, word, of, word of God. And the second one is rhema. Rhema is the word of God, the written word of God. But there's one word that defines rhema and sets it apart from logos, and that is specific. It is specifically a word, okay? So let me give you um, a little bit idea of what I'm talking about. The book of Revelation. Now, I know some of you are scared with Revelation. Um, you should read it anyway. But the, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are God Jesus speaking to the church, churches, seven letters to seven churches. Now you tell me, were all of those letters the same? No. Did he send out a mass email and just kind of attach, you know, to the church of Philadelphia, the same thing I'm saying to everybody? No, he didn't. It was specific. So what he wrote to the church of Philadelphia was different than what he wrote to the church of Laodicea. In the church of Philadelphia, he had nothing bad to say, only words of encouragement. And on the other hand, to the church of Laodicea, he had nothing good to say, only a warning and hope. There's always hope, but a warning. Now, I wouldn't want to be the one to get those two letters mixed up because God had something specific say, to say to one church and something specific to another, just like he has something specific to say to you today that might be different than his word to you yesterday or a year before or a year from now. He might have a specific word to a church or a church age. The question isn't, does God want to speak? He does. But are we listening? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. Faith does not come 
by the word of God. Faith does not come by hearing the word of God. It comes by hearing, and yet the pause. Faith comes by hearing, and now hearing comes by the word of God. But we need to be listening. So God wants to speak specifically to us. Now, how do I know that God is speaking specifically? Well, oftentimes I'll read the Bible and I'll understand it. I'll get it. I'll move on. And there's always that day that you read something and it like explodes. It jumps off the page. It changes your life. You couldn't believe that you've never read this before or that you did and you didn't understand it. And then you get in the car and the preacher is preaching right on that passage. And then your wife sends you a text and it's that passage. You know, I love what the old preacher, he says, I, I don't trust man's ability to hear from God, but I do trust in God's ability to speak to man. And so when God wants to get your attention, he will. He will speak to you and speak and speak until you understand it. Remember when, you know, Elijah was in, you know, on Mount Horeb. What are you doing here, Elijah? Wasn't listening. A little bit later, what are you doing here, Elijah? Are you listening? Okay, he'll speak. So that rhema of God, a specific word for today. Number one, God speaks through his word. Number two, that God speaks specifically through his word. And number three, it's getting a little bit more challenging. God will speak to the conscience. God will speak to the conscience. Now, what do I mean by that? How do you know who are you going to marry? How do you know what job to take? How do you know what school to attend to? If you buy a house, if you don't buy a house, the place you're going to move, how do you know what scripture do you turn to to find out God's will? The struggle with this for so long in my Christian walk until one, I found one verse, and it's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. It says, let the peace of God rule your heart. In a better translation, it says, let the peace of God umpire your heart, okay? Now, we might have a few Americans here. Uh, Baseball is like almost a strictly American sport, and even some of us Americans don't really care for it, and that's okay. But you guys know what an umpire does. If he's on the field, he's going to decide whether somebody is safe or out. He's going to decide whether it's a, a, you know, a foul ball or, you know, a, or a strike. He's going to throw, you know, the pitcher off of the field if he chooses to. He rules that field, okay? Now, I'm going to give you one more example because some of you may not like baseball. Um, neither do I. Please don't tell my American friends. Not the best. But I'm going to give you an example so you guys really understand, okay, that God will speak to the conscience. Years ago in class, I asked our students, specifically our girls, and I said, girls, have you ever been to a bachelor's home? In a sanctified way. Maybe you had an uncle who was single or, you know, some brothers in the Lord that had a Wednesday night Bible study. Tell me, what was that house like? All guys, all, all dudes live in there. What was that house like? And a young lady, she stood up and um, very eloquently and slowly she said, Pastor Matthew, it was disgusting. <laughs> I said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, sister. (laughs) Because guys don't care. They will keep the couch with the rips in it. They will never vacuum. They have like, you know, ninja weapons as decorations. I mean, 
And by the way, guys, apparently that's not acceptable. When you get married, you'll figure that out. Beer bottles stacked up. I mean, you're just like, what is going on? But listen, have you ever seen that young man get married? Let me tell you something. That house or apartment, it is nothing short of miraculous watching that young lady come in and clean house. Get rid of the couch, ninja weapons off of the wall, beer bottles thrown in the garbage, vacuum. I mean, she will make that house look absolutely beautiful. It's like a different place. And usually I'll ask young men, I say, you know, how do you find peace in your home? And they're like, I don't know. So let me tell you, your wife will let you know. <laughs> how, do we find, how do we find peace in our life? Don't worry, because the Holy Spirit will let you know. God will give you peace, and he will take away peace. You could be going down what seems like the right direction, and God just takes away. I mean, some of you young ladies, you could be dating a Christian man, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with him, and you just lose peace because he's not the one. You know, when I left America, you know, Israel didn't make sense at all. I didn't know a single person. I had never been here before, and the first time that I stepped foot in Israel, everything I owned was in a couple of bags <laughs> that we entered the country, but I had the peace of God that this is where God wanted me. And so follow the peace in your heart. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. I, I know that, you know, we're kind of out. I'm dating myself a little, little bit. For you young people, that's not an app. It's something that we used to do in like the 80s and 90s. But you ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? like 2,000 pieces, and, and it's always like, you know, a giant, like, field with flowers and like a tiny little, you know, you know, log cabin in the background. You get the cabin, you got that, but like the rest is just a, a big mess. It's all the same color. That's what makes it so hard. And there's always that one piece that looks like it fits, seems like it's the right color, it's almost the right shape, and you're going to jam it in there because doggone it, I'm going to make this fit, <laughs> and I'm tired of this puzzle. <laughs> it takes a little bit before you stop and say, you know what, this isn't the right piece. And sometimes we do that in life, and we're trying to make something fit, and God isn't giving us peace, and there's something in us saying, change your direction. We need to follow the peace that God has given us, or the lack of peace. God is faithful. The second point that I want to make about these passages tonight, number two, God's economy is not man's economy, okay? The way that God thinks is not the way that man thinks. I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 55, verses eight through nine. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, are my ways your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Another verse, Luke 16, 15. But Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in, the men, in men's eyes, but God knows your heart. For what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. What is the world think is great. A high education, money, fame, good looks, talent, charisma. Is that what God prefers in us? What does God want? 
humility, love, gentleness, patience, kindness. He said, you want to be the greatest among my people, be the greatest servant. Being a servant in this world is absolutely despised. And God says, if you are the greatest servant, you're the greatest in the kingdom of God. There's a story that a preacher told that I absolutely loved. And it was a, he said it was a true story. And he gave a spiritual application out of it. And wanting to know if it was a true story, um, of course, I went on the internet and, and I found it. I found this true story on the internet. And since we all know that everything on the internet is in fact true, um, I'm going to share the story with you. <laughs> he said, years ago in New York City, two men broke into a jewelry store. He said, but they didn't take anything. They just changed the price tags on everything. So something that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars was marked down to just a few bucks. And something that was absolutely worthless was marked up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then they left. Maybe they're hoping to come back shopping the next day. I don't know. But he said something that struck me. He said, there is one coming like a thief in the night. And he will change the price tags on all of our stuff. There are men and women who have spent a lifetime in their prayer closet crying out to God that nations would get saved, who will be front and center in the kingdom of God. And there are men and women who have tried to place themselves on top because of selfish ambition. They have nothing to show for it. Their souls will be saved. So it's not a matter of salvation. But all of our works will be tested as to what kind they are. But the bottom line is, are we looking at life in our decisions and people the way that God sees them. I'm absolutely convinced that 90% of our really bad church politics could be solved if we would just search for men after God's own heart rather than just men with great charisma. Men that can gather a crowd and create a, 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 you know, a super church or whatever that is. I'm not even saying those are bad things. But it's problematic if somebody has talent or ability over character. Do you know that in Timothy, the majority of the, the attributes of, um, or the qualifications of an overseer are mostly about character and only one about ability? It says, may he be able to teach but then it goes on and on about may he be, you know, a husband of one wife and raise his kids well, have a good reputation, not be given to much wine, not be given to greed, all of these things. May his character be impeccable. Yeah, he should teach. Absolutely. You know, I think it's the, the scripture in Titus where it talks about that an overseer should be, be able to be hospitable. When was the last time you saw somebody passing out tea and crackers and they're like, man, that guy should be a pastor? Never. We only want to know one thing, how well he can teach. I, I don't remember which great man of God years ago, maybe it was D.L. Moody. He said, one day we're going to spend more time entertaining goats than feeding the sheep. That's a scary thought. 
And so God's economy is not man's economy. Number three, when it comes to being raised up, I want to say this to you all, and I know that not everybody here is called to the ministry or the pastorate, but you've called to be a parent or in some sense serve in the kingdom of God. And I want to, want to give you a little something. I want to encourage you to don't become weary in the preparation. There is a theme in the entirety of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that the man who God uses he will spend more time on their preparation than even ministry sometimes. You think about Moses who was in the wilderness for 40 years before he, you know, he went to Egypt to set his people free. You have Joseph who was in prison for 10 years. David, you know, in the wilderness for 15 to 20 years. You have Jesus, right? You know, how, how many years of silence that we don't even know the life of Christ? Three years of ministry. John the Baptist, 30 years, and some say that he had six months of ministry. Even Paul, thrown into, you know, Arabia for four years. So God is working on us. You know, I, I'm going to probably misquote it, but there's a hymn that I used to sing all the time called, Pass Me Not. Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. And I, I can't remember the rest of the lyrics, but basically, as you're calling others, don't forget about me. Because the Christian experience, we go through trials and wilderness and preparation. It is so long and we can often feel like God has abandoned us or that he's, you know, taken us off the shelf. He's over us. He's never going to use us again. And I want to submit to you that maybe he hasn't taken you off the shelf. Maybe he's just preparing the shelf for you. Saul, King Saul, good looking, tall, charismatic. Yeah, go be king. He has a fall. David, probably the greatest king that Israel has ever seen, thrown into the wilderness to try him and prepare him to be king. And so if you're growing weary, listen, just keep going. Keep going. God has something. Each and every one of us has a place in the kingdom of God. It's different. It's unique. But we're all in this together. Number four. Number four is... I want to plead with you, and maybe whoever is on the airways, please, don't abuse the sheep. These are, you are, God's sheep. And there are so many out there seeking to fleece the flock rather than to feed the, shop, the, the flock. Remember in Passion Week, where Jesus came into Jerusalem. And one of the first things he did, it says he made a, a whip out of cords and he began to overturn the tables and to chase the money changers out. And the reason why, he explains. He says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. In other words, that God wanted his people to come and worship him and commune with him, and people made it a place where they can actually gain from God's people. They can strip from God's people. Imagine if we're all, you know, faithful uh, Jews from the, the first century, and we're making our pilgrimage to the, the city of Jerusalem, maybe traveling 80, 100 miles in one of the three 
holidays that were required to come here and to sacrifice and to, you know, to make that trek to Jerusalem. And you go to the, the pool of Shaloach, which means scent, and you wash there, you cleanse yourself, you have your offering that you picked out of your flock. It's the, the best that you have, and you're walking up those steps. And you're singing the Psalms of Ascent, you know, like, I lift my eyes into the heavens. Where does my help come from? But from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And you're getting excited because you get to offer this to the Lord and you worship him. And when you get to the top of those steps, to the platform, you're met by a man who says, let me inspect that. You know, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, but not good enough. I just happen to have this you lamb back here that has been approved by the priests. Yeah, it's going to cost you a little bit, but you know what? God is worth it. And now a man is taking advantage. And I want to submit to you, it wasn't just first century Judaism. The money changers are alive and well today. And I'm not going to name names, you know, lest I be judged. I want to say that any person that is trying to profit, no pun intended, off of God's people, that's a dangerous place. Selling my books, you know, I want you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, go to my prophecy conference, whatever that is, all for personal gain. I think that it's wrong. Because I think that we need to serve God. Like David, out there protecting the sheep, Kill the lion, kill the bear, protecting the sheep and not using the sheep. It's very easy to come to a place where we're using God for ourselves instead of realizing that God wants to use our lives for his kingdom. One of my favorite passages that David says, you know, to Ornan, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to pay for this threshing floor because why should I give to the Lord that which cost me nothing? And so we shouldn't, Seek to take advantage, but give people the advantage. To not take, but to give. And lastly, I want to take a look at the Good Shepherd. I want to take a look at the Good Shepherd because I think that as we look at Christ and his way of shepherding, I think that we can learn a lot. And whether you're called to shepherd a flock or you're going to go home and be a parent or whatever it is, I think that we can learn a lot from this. David wrote Psalms 23, and he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, he learned that God provided for him. He says, as I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Both his rod and his staff, Okay. Now, the number one thing that I think that we can learn from the good shepherd is this. We must feed God's sheep. Feed them. Remember when Peter was being restored after he sinned and Jesus, you know, had, you know, that moment with him on the Sea of Galilee and he said, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. You know, I, I think about Paul who said, I am guiltless of the blood of all men. And you know why he said that? He said that because he said that he taught the full counsel of God, both the good and the bad. 
Your rod and your staff. What's a rod do? It corrects. What's a staff do? It leads and guides. And both were a comfort to David. And you as parents know there are times where you have to encourage your kids and tell them that they are the best and God loves them and lift them up. And there are times where you have to tell them the bad news. You have to tell them hard things. And you know what? If you're a good parent, because it hurts to have to discipline, doesn't it? You'll put your personal feelings aside and say, I don't care if you hate me. I love you enough to tell you these hard things. The Bible says that it's that better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. You want to know who loves you the most? The one who tells you the hardest truth. Not the one who breaks you down and is always trying to make you feel bad, but the one who will look into your life, knows you and loves you and says, look, I love you, but let me tell you something. You're on a bad path. And I don't care if you unfriend me on Facebook or whatever. I care enough about you to say these hard things. But then also to shepherd, to lead people in the right direction. And that brings me to the second point. We must lead God's sheep. Now, what are we leading them to? One of the characteristics of the the last days apostate false teacher is that he will lead men and women to himself. My teaching, and only I know. By the way, if you ever hear a teacher say, nobody else knows this, it's never been taught in church history, but I know these secret things, you need to run, okay? Run away quickly. So the false prophet will lead men to himself. We need to lead God, lead men to Jesus. One of the principles that I've always carried with me in doing the Bible college, I'll have young men come to me or young women say, hey, look, I need help. I need this problem. I don't know what to do. The first thing that I will ask is, have you gone to the Lord with it? Have you asked? Have you prayed about this? What does God say? What is God speaking to you? Why? Because I don't want to become an idol in their life. I don't want to be the source of truth. I'm wrong often. (laughs) Ask my wife. I I don't even know what the will of God is for my life sometimes. So my my job as a shepherd is to point people to Christ. Say, go to him, go to him, learn of him, seek him, and he will be found. And lastly, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus paid the ultimate price. And that's why when you you know, pull that young lady aside and she thinks that she's in love and I'm like, look, you know how you love him? No, you know how you know he loves you? He will lay down his life for you. He'll put a ring on that finger. He'll go to work. He'll buy a home. He'll take care of you. He'll do everything that a good husband is supposed to do. But if he hasn't done that, then don't trust him. The good shepherd lays down his life because he cares for the sheep. And so if somebody is just taking then we need to be careful with that. But if somebody is willing to give their life up, you can trust that because it cost them something. And I'm going to leave you with this. Um, Well, first in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ paid 
the ultimate price for us, even while we were yet in our sin. How much more should we give our life to him and follow him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to not live for this world or for self or legacy or notoriety or even a 401k, even though none of those things are bad, but to live for Christ sold out for him. Let me tell you something. This life is so short. I thought I was invincible when I was 20. I blinked, and now I'm a middle-aged man. I will blink again, and I'll have one foot in the grave, and then I will go home to be with the Lord. And I love that saying. It says, only one life will soon be passed, and only what we've done for Christ will last. He laid down his life for us. How much more should we lay down our lives for his sake and for the gospel's sake? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we just thank you that you have been a good shepherd in our life. We thank you, Lord, that mercy shall follow us all of the days of our life. We thank you, Lord, that you have been so good to us even when we haven't been faithful to you. We thank you, Lord, that you lay down your life, and it just takes simple faith and trust in you to inherit eternal life, and you don't make us jump through hoops, but we can enter in, Lord, by your grace. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us to first walk with you and allow you to be the shepherd of our life. And as we shepherd others, Lord, may we do it with your heart and your character. So we thank you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.